So pray for me as we walk through the teaching this morning. First of all, I just want to say welcome. Uh, if it's your first time here, which I feel like there's a couple people here who um, probably didn't plan on being here this morning, but because of a friend, they invited you and you're here this morning. And I believe you're here for a divine purpose and reason. That's to encounter the living King Jesus, to encounter the presence of the Lord, the ruler of all things, the one who reigns, the one who sits at the right hand of the Father, advocating for all of us. And I'm glad you're here. Uh, we are simply a Jesus community of people who are seeking to walk in the way of Jesus under his lordship, walking in newness and wholeness, and really believe he offers the best life possible. The good life, not the easy life, it's hard, but the good life of fullness and, and depth of meaning and purpose. So I'm thrilled that you are here with us this morning. I did want to share this as well. Many of you know that February is Black History Month. And one of the things I love about our city is its history in the civil rights movement. In case you guys did not know, February 1, 1960, there were four young anti students who took a stand uh, for justice, for what is right, in an honorable way by sitting in at Woolworth's counter downtown Greensboro and began a movement that eventually had a spokesperson by the name of Dr. Martin Luther King. Um, in case you guys didn't know this as well, Dr. King was supposed to speak in Greensboro the day after he was assassinated. He was scheduled to speak here at AME Church over off of Florida Street. And my hope and prayer as a follower of the way of Jesus, as image bearer, as one part of the fellowship of believers, that we pursue unity, we pursue reconciliation, we come alongside of those who are who are facing marginalization or oppression or have for, for years, the fact that we even have to have a month dedicated to history of African Americans blows my mind. And it's something I don't want us to celebrate or bring up just on, on a certain Sunday in February, but we celebrate it and pursue unity and reconciliation for the rest of our life as followers of the way of Jesus throughout the year and all throughout our time as a community together. One of our core values is racial reconciliation. That's a pursuit that we're on but today, I just want to take a moment to honor our African-American brothers and sisters and the history that they have in, 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 in amongst the church, the, the, the country we live in, the city that we live in. And I want us to continue to pursue unity and honestly, um, in front of our community, have a moment of repentance. Have a public moment of repentance. Some of you go, I don't, I don't know, I, I, I didn't have any role in, in some of the oppression of people of color, the reality is, is that we have to have a voice of repentance in this cultural moment that we live in and humble ourselves before our brothers and sisters. So I want to take a moment today just to, to honor our African-American brothers and sisters who we love dearly. Um, we started a teaching series last week called The Gospel and the Story of God. The Gospel and the Story of God. I believe this is a formidable teaching series for our community, for you as a follower of the way of Jesus, for us and our formation as a church plant here in the heart of downtown Greensboro, because it helps for us define what the gospel actually is in a culture where I believe there has been an increasingly um, disconnect between what the gospel truly is based on the definition of the scriptures. Um, Last week, we talked about the idea that the gospel at its core is the saving story of 
Lord or King Jesus. His life, his death, and resurrection. The gospel isn't merely how to get saved or a plan of salvation. It isn't a doctrine or even a theology, but is centered on the story of Jesus. It isn't the story of salvation, but the story of the one who saves. It is centered on the story of Jesus. We looked at 1 Corinthians 15 last week, and when we dilute the gospel to merely the plan of salvation, it primarily focuses on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and misses the three years previous and the full scope of the story. Before the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and even the New Testament, the church had 1 Corinthians 15. It had the gospel. We talked about how 1 Corinthians 15 was really the very first creed that held the church together. It held ecclesia together. It created a sense of alignment. Almost 50% of the entire scriptures for what we call the Bible are narrative or story. Almost 50% is narrative or story. And I think it's interesting because stories change culture. Stories change culture. They shape humanity because they are compelling. We are story-created beings. You want to see the world change. You want to see your neighborhood change. Your friends experience transformation. We have to share an alternative story, not just a new doctrine or teaching. Is that important? Yes. What's compelling is stories. And at the core of the scriptures is the story of Jesus and ultimately the story of God. To understand the story of Jesus, it is vital that you also have an understanding of the larger story of God because Jesus and the story of Jesus is the climactic point of the larger story. It's the climax of the story. The story of God is the high-level thread that runs through the entire library called the Bible. I mentioned to you guys last week that you will not find the word Bible anywhere in here. Bible simply means a book. It means a holy book. But in this Bible is 66 books. This is much more like a library than it is a single book. And in the library called the Bible, we see all different types of genres. We see discourse. We see poems. We see law. We see genealogies. We see uh, apocalyptic literature. We see, um, we see psalms of songs and, and praise and honor and frustration. We see wisdom. We see biography. We see all these different types of genres all throughout the library of Scripture. And I believe if you or I were to walk into a library today, we would approach the library differently than a singular book. So we have to understand that as we're approaching the story of Scripture. But throughout it all, there is this running thread or this story that leads us all to King Jesus. Every basic plot line or story arc, as you all well know, has an exposition, conflict, rising action, climax, Falling action and resolution. This is basic literature, basic English here. Ninth grade English, you guys remember some of you were trying to forget that year. It was tough for you, right? For me, I did not look at all like I do now. I was a few pounds ago with long Justin Bieber-esque hair, okay? So I'm still trying to forget that year in my life. Braces, the whole, the whole you know, whole nine yard, whatever. But anyway, I thought I looked cool. It's, it's whatever. <laughs> I'm trying to forget ninth grade English. But in in this, we see four main parts of the God story connected to this basic plot line or story arc. And in this larger story, we see four parts, creation, 
fall, redemption, and restoration, with the climactic moment being the story of Jesus, known as the gospel. However, what tends to happen if you or I reduce the gospel story of Jesus to merely Jesus conquering sin, you then only get half of the story. You only get fall and redemption, which is only half of the whole God story. And our hope and prayer and desire as a community is to not miss out on the other half of the larger story. So today we dive into the first part of the God story, which is creation. Creation. Now hear me out. I am not seeking to do an apologetic on the creation story and how science and creation intermingle together. That is not my hope. That is not my desire at all today. I'm not going to discuss whether the earth is young or it's old or if Adam rode around on dinosaurs. I'm not talking about that today, okay? That misses the point of what we are trying to accomplish in our teaching this morning. If you want an apologetic of how science and creation, the story of God, all come in together. There are brilliant scholars all throughout the world who have produced great work on the topic. Some of those, just for you to know, are people like Dr. Frank Turek, John Lennox, William Lane Craig, Norman Geisler, Mary Jo Sharp, and Robbie Zacharias. If you want to get into apologetics, get into science and creation, the story of God, how they all intertwine, these are some fantastic scholars to look into. Matter of fact, if you want a book, if you are really interested in this idea and you want a book to dive into, there is a book by Dr. John Lennox called Seven Days That Divide the World. Seven Days That Divide the World by John C. Lennox. Now listen to me. Dr. Lennox is not a pastor, okay? He is a world-renowned scholar who has multiple doctoral degrees from Oxford and Cambridge and is a professor of mathematics at Oxford. It's a dense read, all right? A dense read. This is not Crazy Love by Francis Chan, okay? <laughs> this, is, this is depth, all right? But our goal is not to do an apologetic this morning of the creation story. The creation story from our vantage point and the ancient writers of the Old Testament focuses primarily on who, not simply on how, which is the question of science. In the ancient world, in oral tradition, the original science was simply... Um, you know, why things happen or who created things. That was the original kind of oral science culture in the ancient Hebrew world. Dr. Stephen Lennox, a former Old Testament professor at Indiana Wesleyan, where I graduated from, says, science wants to know what chain of events produced the universe. The Bible is content to identify the ultimate cause for everything, God. Not how, but who is the question with which the Bible is concerned. Matter of fact, Genesis 1, I mentioned this last week, is, uh, is poetic in its genre. It is poetic. It's not a science textbook. Uh, Genesis 2, if you read Genesis 2, it is much more historical in its approach and its literature. And so they sometimes seem like they contradict each other, but understanding that the author's intent is different. One's poem and one's more historical in their literature. So keep that in mind, all right? So, I'm not a scientist. I'm a pastor who loves Jesus, and I love the scriptures. So, just wanted to throw that out there this morning, all right? Genesis chapter 1. Let's go ahead and hop there in your Bible. Genesis chapter 1 is where we're going to be at. 
Again, give me grace for my nasal congestion this morning. Sudafed's become a good friend. So take a sip of tea. Genesis 1, starting in verse 1. First two verses of the entire library of the scriptures. In the beginning. Now, in the beginning is a phrase that is literally the definition of Genesis. When we look at what Genesis means and is, Genesis as a word is translated birth or simply the beginning. Or it could also be translated nativity. Is that not interesting? Think about the nativity of Jesus. In the beginning, this idea of the Genesis, the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now let's jump ahead to verse 26 through 28. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Some translation says multiply. They say multiply here. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, come now. Have your way in our time together this morning. Meet with us as we look at your scriptures. As we look at the beginning moment of the larger God story that every one of us in this room is in right now. We aren't detached from it. We are a part of. We are characters that you're calling us to participate in this story that you are writing. Lord, we thank you for your grace and for your mercy. And God, would you please help me get through the next 30 minutes with this head cold that I have. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. The first five words of Genesis chapter 1 set the tone for the entire story of God. It set the tone for the entire story of God. It sets the trajectory and solidifies one of the key functions of who God is. These five words carry deep weight because of the ontological, which simply means the nature of being, becoming, reality, and existence, the ontological impact they have on the world, as well as we will soon see in humanity at large, in humankind. They show two very important things in these five words. In the beginning, or in the Genesis, God. This shows us that God exists. God exists outside of time. God exists outside of time because it says in the beginning, God. Before the beginning, there was God. He exists outside of time as well as creation itself. Space, time, and matter all have an absolute beginning, but God does not. God, however, simply has always been. He has always been. Frank Turek says this, and this is probably the most scientific we'll get all day today. So hold on to this quote, all right? This is the most apologetic and scientific we'll get this morning. The bottom line is this. 
Since there was an absolute beginning to space, time, and matter, it's reasonable to conclude that the cause of the universe must be spaceless, timeless, and immaterial. This cause must also be personal in order to choose to create, intelligent to create, such a fine-tuned universe and a powerful and powerful to create out of nothing a spaceless timeless immaterial personal intelligent powerful being is exactly what theists call god dr frank turek it's all you science nerds let's move on past the apologetic all right (laughs) we see here that god is an author because there is a beginning god is an author he's a writer because there is a beginning to the story. But he's also an artist. Because the very first action of God is that he created. He is author and artist all at the same time. And we see that in the first five words of Genesis. In the beginning, God shaped, formed, molded, and created something out of nothing. The Latin phrase is ex nihilo which means out of nothing, out of nothing he created. Now, something didn't come from nothing. When there is an effect, there is always a cause. The cause, however, here is someone, someone. That being the Trinitarian union of God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, or my charismatic brothers and sisters like to say Holy Ghost. That is a Trinitarian union called God. God is simply a title. It has three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I was asking my wife yesterday, I said, if you were to describe the Trinity, how would you describe it to someone? Or if I asked you, what's the Trinity? How would you respond? Core doctrine of the Christian belief. I heard this analogy one time, blew my mind, and this is free today. It costs you nothing, all right? It's this idea that H2O is water itself, but it takes form as mist, ice, rain. It's all H2O. And I thought that is the most beautiful articulation of the Trinity. I thought that was fantastic. Again, cost you not a dime, all right? <laughs> What's so unique about the Christian and Jewish creation story, among many others, is that many ancient creation stories, which there are many, come out of conflict. Typically come out of conflict, oftentimes, or there is some kind of sexual tension among mythical gods. Mythical gods, there's some kind of sexual tension, and out of that comes creation. However, in the creation story of the Bible, both in the Hebraic understanding and the Christian understanding, creation is birthed from and for community. It is birthed from and for community. In Genesis 1.26, it says, Then God said, Let us make. Let us. Last I checked, us means more than one. Let us make. Us signifies community. It signifies fellowship. It signifies relationships and equality amongst the Trinity. 
No one person of the Trinity is above the other in the creation story. They all three create form and shape out of their community. You want to know why you desire relationship? You want to know why you desire to be known and to know? It's because the one who created you is in community itself. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That is why you desire community. That's why when you're lonely and in isolation, you're like, this doesn't feel right because it's not. You weren't meant to function in isolation. You weren't meant to be lonely. You were meant to be known and to know. You were meant to be in community. And at the core of the creation story, we see that creation is birthed from and for community. Birthed out of the Trinity and into the community called humankind. Community and creating are at the core of the God story. Community and creating are at the core of the God story. Two very important concepts when we look at Genesis chapter 1 as well as Genesis chapter 2. Community and creating are at the core of the God story and understanding that there is a cause There is a cause for creation, and that cause was the Trinitarian community known as the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is spaceless, timeless, matterless, personal, intelligent, and creative, known as God. When we moved to Wilmington in the 1990s, I was thrilled because there was a known hot spot in town Some might call it a nightclub. It's up to you. This hot spot in town called Chuck E. Cheese. (laughs) All right? Some of y'all are like, I'm going there for lunch today. (laughs) We moved to Wilmington, and I saw there was Chuck E. Cheese on Oleander Drive, and I'm like, I'm living here for the rest of my life. (laughs) I'm going nowhere. I love this place. It's fantastic. Chuck E. Cheese defined childhood in the 1990s. At least it did for me. And I believe Lysol became a household commodity all because of Chuck E. Cheese. (laughs) This place was a dream. And the pizza, the pizza was surprisingly satisfying. Surprisingly satisfying. Parents would bring their kids And the kid, you know, would get a stamp at the front where there's this little gate, and you would get this stamp on your hand. And from that moment on, the kid, and kids, plural, were free to roam and reign all over Chuck E. Cheese. Do whatever they want. Hop in a ball pit. That's disgusting. (laughs) Seriously. Have you ever been to Chuck E. Cheese in the ball pit and you're like, I feel something that's kind of warm and soft underneath and I don't know what it is. Disgusting. Or a little piece of candy stuck to a ball. Disgusting. But you loved it. You couldn't get enough. You go play, you know, skee ball with your buddies or you might go shoot basketball. My favorite was when the basketball machine was broken and the ball just kept coming back to you. The game never ended. I just shot shots the whole time. This place was a dream, in my opinion. And if you remember, the motto 
for Chuck E. Cheese was and still is, you know what? Where a kid can be a kid. That's the motto of Chuck E. Cheese, where a kid can be a kid. And if you remember, you know, you would go and you play all these games and you rack up hundreds and hundreds of tickets only to walk away with a slinky and a few Tootsie Rolls. And your parents spend 40 bucks on coins for you to play games. And you walk away with a slinky and two Tootsie Rolls and you are thrilled at the top of the mountain. You're like, I've arrived. Finally, this is it. You look back, you're like, that's just capitalism right there. That is consumerism and capitalism at its finest. Where a kid can be a kid. In Genesis 1, see, I'm pulling it back in. You like that, right? Like, where is he going with this analogy? In Genesis 1, 26 through 28, we see the creation of humankind. Both Adam and Eve are put into a place called Eden, which in the original language means delight. It is the place where a human can be a human. Much like Chuck E. Cheese is a place where a kid can be a kid, this place called Earth is a place where a human can be a human. This garden of sword represents a macro temple where humanity can go mingle in the presence of the triune community. It is a place where there is no separation of heaven and earth. It's all in one space. In verse 26, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Key word we see repeated here over and over again. It's the word image. It's the word image. You know, in these few verses, we see the answer to two of the primary existential questions that we as humans often ask. Now, understand, this is pre-fall. This is pre-biting into an apple which we don't see apple in the scriptures, but I'll give it to you. Pre-biting into the fruit, we see the answer to two existential questions that at some point in your life you have asked this of yourself. You have wrestled. Maybe you're by yourself at night and you're laying there asking yourself these questions. And it's deep within your soul. It's deep within your humanity. There's two questions are the blueprint of human design from our very origin. First question is, who am I? Who am I? Who am I? And the second question is, what is my life's purpose? Better yet, you're like, why on earth am I here? Maybe you've been in a down season or a challenging season, and you're like, what, what am I doing here? Like, what is my purpose? Is it really just to get a degree, which my economics professor in college called toilet paper? He said, a degree is like toilet paper. I'm like, okay, I've still got to get it, all right? (laughs) You're like, is it just to get a degree? 
Is, is, it, is, it, is it just to find romance? Is it just to work a job? You know? Is it just to make money? What, what really is my purpose? Better yet, who am I? I found myself in different seasons across my life. Have you? Where your identity is wrapped up in something? Others know it, but you don't. Where your identity is wrapped up in something out of alignment with the design of Creator God. And you wrestle because you think you've found the antidote, but you haven't. You still lay abed at night and still ask the question, who am I? I thought I found the answer, but I haven't found the answer yet. This is a question of identity. It's a question of identity. At the core of who I am, how am I defined? As human, as a human being, how am I defined? I have a good news for you today. There's an answer to the question in Genesis chapter 1. You and I are image bearers of creator God. That also costs you nothing. You and I are image bearers. That is who you are at the core of your identity. You reflect the characteristic and the nature of the triune community called God. The garden was meant to be a playground, sandbox, and art project, giving humanity the freedom and opportunity to create and cultivate, all the while reflecting the attributes, character, ingenuity, and creativity of God. We as humanity reflect the image of God. There is no person in this room, I don't care your story, your background, your present situation, that doesn't reflect the image of God. Every one of us reflects the image of God. Now, because of the fall, as we will see next week, there is brokenness there. We are a broken image. Much like a shattered mirror that could still show a reflection, but it's broken and it's cracked. We'll get into that next week. But at the core of who you are is a reflection of the attributes, ingenuity, characteristics, and creativity of creator God. Wow. There is no identity that this world can create or put on you that supersedes that. Because it transcends time. It transcends Time. You and I, as humans, are image bearers or icons in some translations. We are icons of God. That is why it is humans who create the future. Have you noticed that? 
Possums don't create culture. Reptiles don't design architecture. Cows don't discover mathematical equations. That is why you see humans creating, designing, developing, theorizing, painting works of art, building communities, writing award-winning novels, desiring to be known and to know in community because we reflect the image of God, the Imago Dei. We reflect God's image. This concept of an image is connected to what we know to be as statues. Statues. Now, remember this place is garden-esque. And as I mentioned earlier, it's a macro temple. It's a garden temple. Statues tend to go in temples. And you and I, as humans, are statues in this world that reflects the characteristics and attributes of God. And Adam and Eve were put into the temple that is earth. The cosmos, the cosmos is the Lord's temple. It is the Lord's temple, and we have been put in this world as statues to reflect and be an image that points back to creator God. Even more wild, human creation is the high point or the climax of the creation story. This is the climactic moment of the whole story where humanity is created. And it is as if the Lord enjoys humanity so much that it takes the seventh day for him to simply look back at what he's created and delight. He's like, I just made humanity and I'm blown away. This is incredible. I don't need to work anymore. Sometimes we think the Lord stopped because he was tired. Wasn't tired. He was just satisfied. He could delight in what he created. He creates humanity, could sit back on the seventh day, and he rests. And by the way, creator God is still in the seventh day even now, as the scriptures tell us. Resting. He delights in the goodness of humanity. Once humans were created, he is flabbergasted to a point where he stops to simply delight in his work. And this is where we get the idea of Sabbath, to stop from work, to delight in the goodness of the Lord. Not only are we meant to reflect the image of God in this world, but we are also given a reason for living. We were given a purpose. We were given a job description as humans, a reason for existence that would give purpose and meaning to our very core There's an old book that came out decades ago called The Man's Search for Meaning. And it's this idea, this study regarding Nazi Germany and how some individuals were able to survive in Nazi camps and some were not. The ones who were able to survive were the ones who had a purpose and meaning that was beyond themselves, that they could cling to and hold to and kept them fighting because it was a purpose and meaning that was beyond simply living Verse 26 says, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may 
rule. Boom, there it is. Purpose, meaning, job description. Why on earth am I here? To rule, to reign, to subdue, to create. You're like, I don't know about you, but I didn't grow up in no royal family. I'm not a king or a queen. But here's the language of creator God. You were made to be a ruler on this earth. This is royal language once again from the scriptures. Kings and queens over the earth. This is the answer to the question, what is my purpose? Or why am I here? You were quite literally made to rule. Not only rule, but also subdue. And you were created to create. You were imagined to imagine. Formed to form. Shaped to shape. One scholar translates the Hebrew word for rule, which is reda, as to actively partner with God in taking the world somewhere. Mind blown. To actively partner with God to take the world somewhere. Rule and image are seamlessly connected, are they not? Your purpose and your identity are very closely connected, are they not? Rule is purpose. Image is identity. And identity and purpose are two of the fundamental tenets of what it means to be human. If you came in this morning and you're asking the question, who am I? What is my identity? What is my purpose? You are an image bearer. I don't care how broken your past may be or how broken your present may be. You are an image bearer, and the Lord has called you to renew your soul, to make you whole. Not simply fix you, but make you brand new, to give you a new heart. Not only that, but you might be wrestling right now in a job or at school, and you're like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with my life. I just want to make money because my dad said I got to make a lot of money. And Sally Mae said I better make the money. Some of us have gotten so caught up in pursuing a dream job that we have forgotten the depths of our soul that is calling us to partner with God in the renewal of all things. And we get the dream job and we're still not happy. We make the money and we're still not satisfied. We get the degrees and something's still missing. Why? Because our purpose has been wrapped up in something that only goes as far as we go. Your purpose and meaning and reason for existence is to rule and subdue in community this world that we live in, to take the world somewhere, to create culture that reflects the goodness of God. My good friend, who I would love to spend some time with at some point in my life, John Mark Comer. One time my wife asked me, she said, Spencer, would you rather spend the rest of your life with me or a weekend away with John Mark Comer? I said, that's a tough one. And then I said, I'm kidding, baby. I love you. You're wonderful. You're my everything, okay? But the man can write, let me tell you. 
John Mark Homer says this, God could have made humans from the dust like he did with Adam, but instead he chose to work through marriage and family. He could have made food fall from the sky like he did with manna in the Exodus, but instead he chose to work through farming and agriculture and trade. You know, God could have done a whole lot of other things, but instead he gives humans the opportunity to create, to shape, to mold, to form, to build community. Be fruitful and multiply. Both man and woman were given the exact same job description. Though they were uniquely different, they complemented one another so that they could both rule effectively together in community. Oftentimes we see the picture of Adam and Eve functioning almost like a pseudo park rangers. Oh, they're out there and, you know, look like Smokey Bear. You know, holding it all together, wearing a hat, you know, making sure there's no forest fires in Eden. They're these park rangers. When that isn't what the scriptures show us, that isn't the case. They weren't so much meant to preserve as they were to cultivate. A better picture is that of a gardener or a farmer. That was the core purpose of Adam and Eve in the garden. Not simply park rangers managing but being gardeners, cultivating, and farmers shaping the world around them, taking the chaos and forming something out of it. This past week, my 88-year-old grandfather passed away. I shared this in the huddle earlier today. And for the last six decades, my grandfather has farmed land. He has cultivated gardens. He's raised cattle, pigs, and goats. He worked hard, grew vegetables, cucumber, corn, tomatoes, all of this. And I thought about my grandfather working hard, and he had those hands that you know he worked hard, those calloused hands. I don't have those. I like lotion, okay? My hands are moisturized. One of the first things Jordan said when she met me was, your hands aren't like my dad. I was like, okay. Let me rub them on some wood or something. I don't know. (laughs) But I thought about my grandfather and the life that he lived. I saw this body in a casket. You know, nobody enjoys really going to funerals. You'll go to a few in your life. But I walked up to this casket, and here's this shell of a physical body, void of a soul. And to think that this man, in some ways, reflected the call of humanity to cultivate land, to create, to build, to shape, to mold, to garden. This is the image given of our unique purpose, our unique calling to create and cultivate, utilizing the raw materials of this world, as well as collaborating in community in order that we might create the future. How cool is it that you as a human being can create the future? Think about life three decades ago. 
Are there problems in the world? 100%. It's a dark place, and it seems to be getting worse. I don't know. But we have the opportunity to create, to cultivate, to shape, to mold as image bearers. We were made to work, design, build, teach, instruct, problem solve, engineer, and develop all while in community, flesh-on-flesh community. I love this quote from Mary-Kate Morse where she says, work isn't the result of the fall. Work is part of the fabric of creation. You and I were made to work, to cultivate, to create, and then to rest and delight in the goodness of the Lord. Listen, the garden sets the tone. Humanity, friends, doesn't begin with the fall. It begins in the presence. It begins in the garden where life is given and life is created. Matter of fact, this story isn't so much about creation, but a creator who gives and creates life. You and I as image bearers were made and created to give and to create life. But we tend to start with the fall can't start with the fall to get the fullness of the story. We have to start with the beginning, with the Genesis. Our purpose and identity still remains to be image-bearing creators. Icons that function as statues of the community called the Trinity in the world around us. Gusto Gonzalez says this, the doctrine of creation is a call for us to love and care for what God loves and cares for. Genesis might be the beginning, but creation still goes on. Creation doesn't end after Genesis chapter 2. Creation continues, and we are called to create as image-bearing creators in community for community, reflecting creator God. If you would close your eyes. As I mentioned earlier, I just kind of felt like there's someone, maybe a couple of people, who this is your very first time today. Or maybe you've been before but only a couple times. And you're honestly like, what am I doing here in this gym with these crazy people with fold-up chairs? But I believe that the Lord in his power and his might and his provenient grace drew you here this morning. And it was through a friend. It was through community. It was through relationship that he drew you here today. And for some of you here today, your identity and who you are has been wrapped up in something that is not true. And you wrestle with the reality that that is the case. You're searching for the answer. But here's the answer, friend brother, sister, you are an image bearer 
I don't care what your dad said about you as a kid. I don't care about the estranged relationship with your mom. I don't care about your past addiction or current addiction. I don't care about the cuts on your wrist. I don't care about the challenging experience you have in school. I don't care about the abusive relationship that you've been in. You are an image bearer of God, and the identity that you've wrapped yourself up in is hollow. And it hurts. There is a radical truth in the cosmos today, an ontological truth, that you are an image bearer of creator God. I don't care if you're young or you're old, rich or poor, black or white, tall or short. You are an image bearer of God. And he has come to give you life and life to the fullness. Not only that, he has given you a divine purpose and a calling to create in this world, not for your own gain or not for your own glory, but for the sake of the world. He has a radical divine love for you that isn't simply romantic love. It is a sacrificial love that gives itself away, a love that transforms, a love that changes your perspective, a love that calls you to rethink the way you're living, to rethink the good life. If any of that describes you this morning and you just want to have a moment of surrender, or even a moment just to say, you know what, I don't even know what I'm thinking right now, but I do sense that the Lord's tugging on my heart about all this identity stuff as a human being. And I've wrestled with these questions at the core of who I am. If that's you this morning, would you just lift your hand up? You just lift a hand up. Be bold this morning. Lift a hand. Nobody looking around. You're just, it's just you and the Lord. You're just sitting here in the Lord's presence. And he's calling you son or daughter. says, I love you. I am king of the world. I want to know you, and I want you to know me. King Jesus, we love you. We thank you that you love us so much so that you went on the cross for us. Oh God, we give you honor. We give you praise. And Lord Jesus, what today spill out into tomorrow? Would it raise questions? Would it create tension? Doubt is okay. Frustration is okay. We're right there to journey alongside of you.